from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, it'll be the Darwin Awards and science fashion. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Darwin's theory of evolution states that only the fittest will survive. But humans seem to have conquered most naturally occurring selective pressures, from predators to disease. Well, almost all of them. We still have ourselves to contend with. Well, joining us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this issue is Ms. Wendy Northcutt. Ms. Northcutt is a graduate of UC Berkeley and the creator of the Darwin Awards website and the popular series of books which details the exploits of humans removing themselves from the gene pool in new and innovative ways. The latest edition, which the Darwin Awards for Intelligent Design, is now available in stores. Ms. Northcutt, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating and humorous series of books and articles that you have. Uh, I'm curious if maybe you can tell us a little bit about the awards. Well, it's a beautiful Lucite plaque that's <laughs> awarded to people who uh, heroically sacrifice themselves in order to improve our gene pool. So while we're uh, sorry you're dead, we can't help but thank you for not having children is the idea of this award. And I'm just teasing about the Lucite plaque. But it was started as a, a newsletter that I, I passed around among friends. It was just a little way to relieve stress and the tedium of working in a laboratory. And how did you come across your first stories and what gave you the insight to start the website? Well, my cousin actually sent me my first Darwin Award story, and it was called a Darwin Award story, so I didn't invent the term, but it was the fellow who slept with a loaded gun next to his telephone. A loaded gun, and he picked it up one night, the phone rang, and he answered the gun instead of the telephone. And that was just so... I mean, I loved the name. It was so, it's such an intriguing thing. I mean, it's poetic justice. You can't argue with natural selection. He obviously was not competent to survive in today's world. So it was just so hilarious. I just thought it was the silliest thing I'd ever heard. It also gave me a little bit of hope whenever you're behind someone who's weaving on the road or can't count out the change at the cash register. You know, it's so frustrating to be behind someone like that. It made me have a little bit of hope that, well, it's hard for me, but maybe in a couple of generations things will be a lot smarter. So I, just a funny story, but I started collecting them. And people started sending me more and arguing with me about my choices. For example, sometimes I would put a Darwin Award up that was somebody who was, oh, maybe 12, 13 years old. And people would argue that at that age, your judgment's not fully formed, and parents have the responsibility to protect their genes, their offspring, until you reach majority. And sometimes there would be stories where perhaps it was a bizarre way of dying, but it wasn't self-selection. It wasn't the person, the person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like somebody who, this is an urban legend, but supposedly somebody was in a park when they were speared with a long icicle of urine that had fallen from an airplane toilet. So that's the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not self-selection, it's, it's accidental selection. So from that I developed some rules that go along with the Darwin Awards. 
there's five of them. You have to be out of the gene pool, and that doesn't necessarily mean dead because if, well, you can imagine that some men have an unholy fascination for vacuum cleaners. <laughs> so these sometimes the Darwin Award event leads to you're still alive, you just can't have children anymore. Um, you have to do it to yourself, something that I can verify, verifiable. Uh, you have to be mature, which is usually around 16, and it has to be something really extraordinarily stupid, not something common. You did mention one of the first awards, and one of my favorites from your series was involving a golf ball washer. Oh, <laughs> I don't recall the details, but um, the balls in question, I do recall, <laughs> were human balls. <laughs> did that, how did that one end, Charles? I, I think it, it ended, of course, with uh, the inability to procreate thereafter. <laughs> so, there you go, in a living Darwin Award contender. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious, actually, so what are some of your favorites over the several years that you've been doing the awards here? Well, my favorites are the ones that really involve some forethought. A few of them are honorable mentions where the, the people somehow managed to survive. And, and one of these was a college student who built a trebuchet. And that's a, a kind of tension-powered catapult from the Middle Ages. And he was fairly proud of his achievement. And he uh, decided he was going to use the inaugural toss in his trebuchet, his, his own body. He knew his mass. And he knew the forces involved, and so he did some calculations, and he set a safety net just about where he thought he'd land. And his calculations were off, so he landed short of the safety net. Um, he managed to survive, but it took a lot of thought and a lot of planning to uh, almost take himself out of the running for the human race. And let's see, another favorite would be, uh, and in fact, this is getting so common, it's almost not even spectacularly novel anymore. I've seen three cases of this. The first one involved soldiers who were having a spitting competition to see who could spit the furthest off the balcony. And uh, it was on the 11th floor, so I don't even know how they were going to tell who had crossed the finish line at the bottom unless they had binoculars. I mean, they were way up there. So one of the uh, soldiers had the bright idea that he would win the competition by adding momentum to his saliva. He backed up and he took a running start right towards <laughs> the edge of the balcony. And he didn't stop in time. Oh. So. <laughs> so my favorites are, are ones like that. Although some people really enjoy the ones that have some poetic justice to them. Like there was a man who, uh, very sadly, he was in the habit of brutalizing his girlfriend's dog. And in the event that killed him, he had taken a, a rifle and was clubbing the dog with the big end of the rifle with the business end pointing up towards him. And he, he wound up shooting himself and killing himself. Mm. Poetic justice at work there. Yeah. Uh, the most recent version of your book is called uh, Darwin's World Wars for Intelligent Design. Is this because of the intelligent design in the way these people have removed themselves from the gene pool? Well, yes, it absolutely is. And for years, I have not mentioned in any way... In, intelligent design, because I think to mention it gives it too much validity. But my editor's a pretty solid guy, and he loved this subtitle, and for I think two or three of the last books, he really wanted it, because it is the intelligent design. The hand of the intelligent designer is this natural selection mechanism. Um, and of course, we almost called it unintelligent design, because there's nothing intelligent about it, and yet it leads to such a, well, such a sophisticated outcome as beautiful intricate machineries of life have emerged from it. So, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit of a poke, but it's really true also. It's, it is what's behind the design of life. I'm curious, do you have any favorites from this most recent edition? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, yes. So there's a story in, in the book about hornets. And there was a man who wanted to 
get rid of the hornets on his property. He's a geophysicist. I'm not even sure what that person would do, but he's a professor, a noted professor, a very intelligent man. He thought that the best way to get rid of these hornets was to take a shot back and suck them into it. Well, actually, this worked. But now he has a bunch of angry, buzzing hornets running around the shop back. They didn't die when they went into it. They were just mad. So he couldn't turn it off. He didn't know what to do. And he was trying to figure out how to take care of this new situation he'd created when his eyes lit upon a can of Raid. Hmm. Well, he thought that's the solution. So he, he, the shop back had, been, back had been running for a good long time, and its motor was hot. He sprayed the Raid into the tube, and kaboom, the thing blew up, searing his eyebrows, didn't kill him, but could have. Anyway, if that wasn't bad enough, not only did it not kill him, it didn't kill about half of the hornets either, and now they were madder than ever. So they attacked him, which was a second chance for him to leave the gene pool. But, you know, with modern science, he was taken to the hospital, and, they, and, and he was saved. So afterwards, he said that it was a tragic miscalculation of consequences. <laughs> I have another favorite from mm -hmm. the book. This is a kind of a theme, I think, almost of the book, but there was a... Apparently, there are live hand grenades available in some of the uh, Eastern European countries. So uh, there's two incidents involving hand grenades. One of them, it was simply a man who wanted to show off at a party, and he was juggling live hand grenades to show off. Mm. And he was pretty good at it. He had six up in the air at one time. Well, he pulled the pin and uh, blew himself up. Wow. In a related story, we had a fellow who was making a chimney cleaning device out of a brush and a metal chain. And he, his plan was to climb up on top of the roof, drop it down, and sort of pull it up and down like dental floss to clean the chimney. So it wouldn't fall down quick enough. So he needed a heavier weight on the end of the chain. He went out into his work shed and saw exactly the, what he needed, a nice heavy piece of metal that he could weld on to the end of the chain. Unfortunately, it was a hand grenade. <laughs> And so when he lit the welder and the plasma, he applied it to the hand grenade, and the hand grenade responded by blowing up. <laughs> so those are some of my favorites. I really, uh, I have so many favorites, and they're constantly changing. Well, certainly guarantees more and more editions of the book. Really, I did think early on that because one of the criteria was that they had to be novel, something I hadn't seen before, mm -hmm. I really thought I'd run out. Mm -hmm. and, and so actually the fact that we do have... 700 stories and every month brings more. It, it really, sure, there might be a genetic component, but there must be some genetic component to making stupid choices, but it doesn't look like it's, it's acting in a noticeable way. And of course, our, our, the human race is so vast, so very large, it, any sort of genetic change would happen extremely slowly. So yes, it looks like I'll have plenty of material for future <laughs> books. Well, I'm curious if you saw the recent movie Idiocracy, where the argument is that, in fact, the most fecund tend to be the least educated. So, in fact, you might expect more and more of these Darwin Awards to occur over time. Yeah, I'd like to see that movie, uh, although I do think our gene pool is so mixed that if you take any hundred people, either a hundred smart people or a hundred not-so-smart people, and set them into a colony in two or three generations, I think you'd have about the same level of intelligence just because we have so many uh, recessives and, and various things like that. But, um, well, I don't know. I don't have any children, and I think I'm smart, but I have no common sense, so it's probably a good thing. <laughs> oh, there, oh, this is interesting. You know, there's, there's the group Darwin Award idea. This is something, and because the Darwin Awards started uh, online, it's, it's a community. It's from darwinawards.com. We have a lot of conversations. And so these ideas aren't all mine, but somebody realized that there are a couple of groups that could win Darwin Awards as a group. One would be 
Catholic priests are required. <laughs> well, anyway, that yeah, I think I just won't go there. Okay. <laughs> but then there was another group called the, I believe they were called the, the Shakers. And there were a group of religious fanatics who thought that it was a sin to have sex. And so the religious group died out, and they win a group Darwin Award because they volunteered to take themselves out of the gene pool. Mm. And then there's another group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Have mm. you heard of them? Yes, yes. Stop procreating for the good of the planet. Out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in a quite cheerful way, they win a group Darwin Award. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious, you know, we aren't really slightly out of time, but after seeing all of these different ways that people have removed themselves from the gene pool, what do you think are the prospects for uh, humanity and uh, the future of human civilization? Well, we're, we're changing at such a rapid clip. Our society is changing. We're, we're involving new tools, new technologies. It really, I don't think that evolution can keep up. So the only hope we have is to evolve our culture and our customs so that it's a safer place. And also perhaps it, it doesn't lie really in changing our genetic background. It lies in changing our, uh, the, the memes that we use, the ideas. So I have, I have hope. I'm a hopeful person. Until we blow ourselves up as a group, I guess we'll, I'll still have material for my books. So, uh, yeah, so if people see something funny happening, I get my best stories, I mean, all of the stories really come from the audience. So there was a plastic surgeon, a reconstructive surgeon who wrote in. She was doing her stint in the emergency room, and a man came in with the finger severed from his left hand. Well, what was he doing? As she's sewing him up, she's hearing his story. Well, he didn't have a hedge trimmer, so he took his lawnmower and he held it sideways to trim his hedge. Well, and this went fine until the, the lawnmower got so heavy he had to sort of readjust his grip, and that's when it bit him and removed his fingers. <laughs> so she was just about finishing up with him when another man came in with the same injury. And on, she said, she said, truth is stranger than fiction. It turned out this man was a neighbor of the first man, saw what he was doing, and <laughs> thought it was a clever idea. So, yeah, so anyone who has a story, submit it at darwinawards.com, and you, you just might see uh, your friend or your neighbor immortalized. <laughs> Maybe not in a good way, though, but... <laughs> <laughs> we all have to die sometime. Might as well make it an object lesson. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> all right. Again, the, the latest edition of the book is the Darwin Awards for Intelligent Design. That is out in uh, stores now. And, of course, the uh, website, again, is uh, darwinawards.com. And hope certainly people will go take a look at that. Ms. Northcutt, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I loved being on your show, and good luck to you, and have a very safe, uh, safe week and weekend. <laughs> Well, you were just listening to Ms. Wendy Northcutt. She was talking about the Darwin Awards. Coming up in just a few minutes, Caltech scientists discussing science fashion. So stay tuned. It's coming right up.
And welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, rarely are the words science and fashion uttered together in the same breath. Indeed, scientists and engineers, while capable of solving complex differential equations, may find constructing an appealing clothing ensemble completely opaque. Is it possible to transform from geek to chic? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Ms. Yvonne Bonzali, Jerry Hauser, Christy Tenaria, Leslie Fox, and Joni Watanabe-Suki. All of them are the organizers of Geek to Chic, Look as Smart as You Are, which was a fashion event held at our very own alma mater, Caltech, a school well known for its scientific prowess, not necessarily tops in terms of fashion. All of you, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Hi, Charles. Glad to be here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you all on the program. I'm wondering if maybe we could start with Mr. Hauser, if we understand as the director of this event, if you could maybe talk a little bit about the event and what it was meant to accomplish. Well, a lot of times when we do interviewing workshops, students ask questions about how do I dress for the interview? Caltech is known for its informality. Students are in labs, they work late, and so this is not a campus where you have a lot of role models that are dressing business professional. So in those interviews, we try to give them a description of what to wear. So this program came out of the idea that maybe we should offer something campus-wide that would help students see what the different kinds of appropriate dress are for different kinds of professional events. Everything from casual to receptions to on-campus interviews to a very formal company situation. So uh, Yvonne started working with some of the student groups. It grew into a committee. People got together and then it became more of a fashion show style event with an actual runway. JC Penney's outfitted about 20 different models. We had Avon, Sephora, uh, different kinds of organizations and supported this. So it became a very good event. We had about 200 in the audience and we had a runway show showing different kinds of ways to dress in a professional way. Mm. Uh, and Ms. Tenari, I understand you were the model coordinator. Did you have a say in terms of picking out the particular ensembles and maybe you can describe some of the particular um, clothing options that people had? Sure. Um, one of my first goals was to get a cross-section that represented members from the different parts of the Caltech community. So looking for models who are undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs, staff, as well as the faculty professors here on campus and uh, we split it up. We had a lot of the students dressing in different levels of clothing from business casual to clothing appropriate for interview wear to clothing appropriate for, you know, casual Friday. A lot of people don't know what casual Friday should look like as opposed to work day week wear and all the way from casual Friday all the way to evening wear. We had models demonstrating all types of clothes today. Hmm. Ms. Fox, I understand you were the uh, host of this event. I wonder if you talk about what it was like seeing techers in business attire, which you normally wouldn't see. Sure, yeah, I think it was awesome. I got to meet a lot of the models beforehand, and of course I became very familiar with the Caltech look, if you will, when I was school. And uh, I got to sort of see the transformation of what they wear on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes everything from shoes being optional. <laughs> and they, they, they dressed up really well. I think they all looked awesome. So it was a lot of fun, and I think it was fun for them to get to dress a little bit differently than they're used to every day. Do you, do you sense that there was a, a lot of enthusiasm for this particular type of event? Again, as you mentioned, probably not the biggest concern for a lot of people at Caltech. Yeah, I think they 
were excited to see something a little different, you know, and there's obviously lots of opportunities around here to go to various academic events and hear people give talks and their research and stuff. But this was something really fun and different for them to do. We had a DJ that was spinning some awesome music. So I think people started seeing the attention and sort of gathering around. And they loved seeing their colleagues and their classmates walking down the runway. So I think it was a lot of fun. They were really enthusiastic. Hmm. Uh, Ms. Wadden-Namasuki, I guess you're also the uh, co-coordinator of the event. Did you feel that it was difficult trying to get students involved in this particular event? No. As far as the committee is concerned, I mean, tons of people volunteered to help out and everything. And there were a lot of students that were there in attendance. I think, for one, they had a lot of fun. I mean, we had two faculty members, also as models, and you heard all the cat calls for the professors. I thought it was great. <laughs> so a lot of the students were interested in it. We did a lot of marketing for the event, and we had a couple camera crews come, someone from CBS and someone from one of the Latino stations in town. So it was great. There was a lot of publicity. It was great. Pasadena mm-hmm. Star News, and there was local Chinese association. So it was uh, well attended. How important do you think is dressing for success in science? Usually most of the uh, people who would graduate might be uh, stuck in a lab somewhere and uh, out of sight of most of the business folk. Well, dressing for the the day-to-day job, when you get to the job, you're going to fit in. So you look around and see what are people dressed like, and so you dress like them. The problem that I think we have is that students don't know how to dress for interviews. And so you need to wear something that shows some respect, that looks good, because the first impression is important. And... Uh, we've had situations in the past where students just weren't quite up to par. They didn't know any better. My own kids are the same way. So you don't want to see them come in flip-flops or wrinkled shirts. So just a little bit of coaching, make a good first impression, and then you can adjust to the work environment when you get there. But we want to get them ready for that interview, and that was what this was a lot about. Hmm. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the people who were sponsoring the event, what kinds of clothing ensembles they provided, and were they very enthusiastic about this event? Yeah, well, there are a lot of sponsors of the event, and I'm also going to have Christy tell you a little bit of the ensemble since she did most of the model work. But the sponsor's event was J.C. Penny, and the reason why we chose them was because they had this great social responsibility type of persona, and Caltech is that way, too. I mean, scientists addresses these amazing problems in this world and try to find solutions for them. And we also wanted to find a vendor that had the same type of cause. And JCPenney was there, and Sephora and JCPenney actually combined together. They're a team. As you know, some Sephora makeup uh, sections are actually in that, in some of their department stores. And then Avon joined us as well. So I'm going to actually give it to Christy to tell you a little bit of the ensembles that they all placed together. Yes. So yeah, again, a majority of the wardrobe and accessories came from JCPenney, and I think one of the things you wanted to stress with this presentation of professional um, workwear is that it's not expensive and it's very accessible to students, particular, especially students who have a budget. And so a lot of these ensembles we picked out were things that are accessible for the workplace, are things that are reachable within a student's budget. So a lot of things like suits. We have affordable suits for under $200 that students were modeling and showcasing. A lot of the outfits came under $100, under $75. It was very important that we showed the students that being professional is not out of their reach and that they can display themselves as smart, young professionals who are ready to join the workforce. Do you think that this event now will change the level of dress at the campus? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Caltech is a lot of work, and not a lot of the work clothes we presented today are appropriate. (laughs) 
for a lot of the work we do. I myself am very guilty of dressing down because I work in a lab, and where I work, I like to wear my lab coat so my clothes don't get dirty. <laughs> but when I'm going out to give a presentation on the work I've done, I believe it is important that I dress the part and present a professional student who is showcasing her research. Mm. All right. Well, it, it is very uh, fascinating, and it does unfortunately look like we're running slightly out of time, but I'm curious if uh, maybe all of you have a final word on uh, going from geek to chic. The idea is to dress appropriately, look nice, look sharp, look smart. Well, good words of advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tell me. I know. Leslie, why don't you say something being an alumni? I guess I would say that anybody can look chic, regardless of what your level of geek is, and that we can all do it. So we're all, Caltech is full of really incredibly brilliant and smart and talented students, and they need to present themselves as smart as they are to the community. So no one's beyond redemption. No, no, definitely not. Nobody is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was very fascinating. And uh, again, I want to thank all of you, uh, Ms. Bonzali, Mr. Hauser, Ms. Tenaria, Ms. Fox, and uh, Ms. Watanabe Suki for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we would like to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. All right. Let's do it. All right. Uh, normally, it's uh, one person. So if you need to huddle and come up with a group answer, however you want to do it, that's fine. But today's Grokatron 5000, which, of course, was our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's topic, the supercomputer known as Deep Blue, has chosen is geek or chic. And it would like to know for the following five people whether or not they are geek or chic and maybe a little reason why. Uh, are you ready to play the game? Yes, yeah, we are. All right, here we go. Person number one, geek or chic, Microsoft CEO Bill Gates. Mm. Mm. He's just so stylish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't. I, I think the majority of us will say geek, but no one really. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the king of all of them, I suppose. <laughs> uh, absolutely. All right. All right, well, number two is the uh, famed physicist Stephen Hawking. Oh. Yeah, he's geek. <laughs> Renowned geek. He's up there, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he can look pretty sharp. I've seen him present. He, yeah. He gets dressed. <laughs> On occasions. <laughs> right, well, he is British, so he has that uh, sensibility, I suppose. <laughs> That's it. Your own geek. <laughs> All right, number three is Caltech's very own uh, Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, they're chic. She is a chic. Very chic. Yeah, okay. Of course, how else could he be? <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, number four is Jerry Springer. Oh, oh gosh. Have I asked Neither. Is <laughs> neither a choice? <laughs> oh, come on. I we don't want him in. Okay, okay. He dresses chic. Oh, for that. Yeah. For a show, maybe geek, but <laughs> Let's just go with neither. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Category C. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number five, finally, the uh, famed physicist himself, Albert Einstein. Oh, God. Do we have to include his hair? <laughs> <laughs> maybe because of his hair. <laughs> now, that's tough, because you always see him in that suit and that bow tie. Well, maybe go a little ruffled, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? That's geek chic. Yeah. Geek chic. Is that a category? Can that be an answer? It is now. All right. So geek okay. chic it is. Geek. <laughs> Thank all of you. All, huh? <laughs> 
All right. Well, I, I do want to thank all of you again, sticking around, playing a game, and, of course, talking about uh, the fashion show there, which was geek to chic. Look as smart as you are. Thank you very much again. Thank, thank you. Thanks. It was our pleasure. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Wing. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. A great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. Turn.